Hello, I'm Jacqueline MacDonald Davis and I work for the Professional Support Unit, Health Education England for London, Kent, Surrey and Sussex. This podcast is to explore the experience of an international medical graduate and to hear the response from an educational supervisor who works extensively with international medical graduates. Neither one profess to be experts in this field, but would like to just share from their experience, from their observation, what they have learnt and what others might do better. So what they are not professing here is that there's a right and wrong way of being a trainee or a trainer, but just how both parties can learn from each other, understand each other in order to be better trainees, trainers, and ultimately better doctors. So Kapil, tell us in a few words about yourself. Hi, I'm Dr. Kapil Kashyap. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and I'm based in Surrey. I have been a consultant psychiatrist for the last eight years and I, over the years I have various trainees and several international medical graduates working as a GP trainee, foundation trainee, co-trainee as well as higher trainees. So this podcast, I will mainly ex- share my experience as a clinical supervisor, but I have to say I'm not an expert in this field and whatever advice I give you is based on my clinical experience over the last few years. Thank you. Over to you now, Reham. Please introduce yourself. My name is Reham Kundar. I am one of the ST3s in KSS DNA. I am working as a trainee representative for three years now. I'm here to discuss about international medical graduates, what problems they deal with, And as an international medical graduate, what experiences I had, what mistakes I made, and what lessons I learned from those uh, mistakes and experiences, and how they shaped me in a better trainee, as a better doctor, and eventually a better person in the long run. Thank you. And we're going to ask you later on to pick up on some of those points about your experience. But I'm going to go back to Kapil and ask you, Kapil, to start off by telling us why you decided to become an educational supervisor. So Jackie, generally when you get a consultant post, you are expected to take up some roles. For example, one of them is uh, either being a clinical supervisor or educational supervisors. I have always liked to teach. So even when I was at medical school, I remember teaching junior medical students. So I took up this role from day one of my consultant post. And to be honest, with the benefit of hindsight, I thought without the trainees, the job would be very boring. I enjoy having a trainee in the team. It helps the team a lot because the trainees bring, mainly international medical graduate brings a lot of their varied experience. As you know, the trainee Reham is saying about, you know, people made from different continent, their experience may come from different countries. And I found working with IMZ very, very rewarding so far. In terms of my trainees' uh, years, I remember I met some very excellent supervisors and some of them helped me where I am now. And I have to say, a lot of good things happened in my career because of the good supervision I received in many training posts. So I felt that I, I can make a difference in the trainees' life. That's why I decided to take up this role on a permanent basis. So I always have trainees. So that is the two main reasons of my becoming a clinical and educational supervisor. Thank you. And I understand that you're particularly interested in working with supporting international medical graduates. 
tell us a bit about that. That may stem from uh, my own experience as an international medical graduate, and I have you know, highs and lows in my career as an IMG when I came to this country. And I have to say, UK has been one of the best countries for medical education and training uh, for international medical graduates. And I think the pathways are much clearer compared to other countries. For example, once you start your training post, you know what to expect, how you move from one year to the next year. And the exams are much more straightforward, although the, the Royal College exams can be difficult sometimes. Because of my own experience as an international medical graduate, I felt I could make a difference to their career path in terms of helping them in exams, helping them in terms of integrating with the team, and also uh, getting the best out of them from the training post. I like that notion of getting the best out of them. So if you had to talk about the highs and lows of being an educational supervisor, let's get the lows out of the way and then we can concentrate on the highs. So what are the kind of lows or the challenges? Trainees can be of different calibre, you have to say. You know, some trainees, although they are from overseas, they may have very good training. So you may not need them a lot of experience. They can do the job very well from day one. But I have also met trainees who need significant support in the post. Now I'm talking about at least two, three months of quite a lot of significant supervision, help with language skills, help with communication skills, and team building. And also I have seen sometimes IMZs struggle with time management and kind of other non-clinical areas, like you know, managing a caseload, administrative duty. So I had trainees, I had to put a lot of effort. Sometimes you feel that you cannot help some trainees as much as you want to. So that, that is probably the low when you don't see the improvement that you expect after putting a lot of effort. And that could be the low. I think it's nine out of 10, I have to say, it's mainly highs as, as an educational clinical supervisor over the last so many years. And also another low is the exams. And if you see a trainee struggle to pass a membership exam, that can be quite disappointing for a trainer because I have seen very good trainees who are excellent clinically, but they can't pass the exams and they have to leave the training rotation completely and take up a non-consultant post. That can be disappointing because you know their potential, you know how good they are, but that, that can be very, very disappointing. And I think I'm sure a lot of clinical supervisors will feel the same, that the exam do not always reflect the clinical skills of a doctor in training. I know you hinted at some of the highs earlier on as to why you took on the role, but anything else you'd like to add about the highs being a supervisor? The highs mainly come when you see the trainees doing well, both clinically and in non-clinical areas, when you see them gaining confidence and working more independently. And one of the things I, I get the satisfaction is that seeing them working very closely with the team, because when an international medical graduate come to a new post, they may not feel belonged. I think sometimes they may have this identity crisis. You know, you are working in a country with a different culture, different language. But once you see them gaining that confidence, gelling well with the team, that, that is really a big achievement as an as a educational supervisor and clinical supervisor. And also when you see them passing their exams and progressing in their career path as you expect, I think that that is very rewarding for trainees. And I think these are the main positive sides of being an educational and clinical supervisor. Building on the kind of highs now of this, when you meet a trainee for the first time, 
what kind of conversation do you have with them? I uh, try to meet with the trainees, international medical graduate, as soon as possible after they start a post. And sometimes I make contact with them before they start the post to get to know them a little bit, get to know when they are taking leaves, for example, uh, if there's anything, any and other issues. So I think the first couple of supervision about more about knowing the trainees, kind of it's a space for them to open up. And at the same time, and I encourage them to open up if I think that will help them in the training post. For example, what are their expectations from the post? How they are in terms of their career? You know, are they going for any exams and any personal circumstances that can affect their training and their placement? And I think I try my best to make it conducive for a kind of frank discussion. And being honest is very important as well at this stage. I think it's very important to be honest and more flexible to the trainees in the first couple of sessions of supervision so that they are feel free to talk about any issues, personal circumstances, career choice. And I have to say, Jackie, I met a trainee who was a co-trainee, but she never wanted to do psychiatry. So that came to light that, you know, in during one of the supervision, they see her, her career choice was something completely different. Actually, we're successful. She moved on to GP trainees after uh, completing her membership exam. So again, I think you need this kind of frank discussion from the outset. And I think that's really interesting what you've just said there, Kapil, about investing that time at the beginning, yep. knowing your trainee and asking those questions. I love it about, you know, encouraging them to be open and honest, asking them about their personal circumstances yes. as well as their expectations. I think it just lends itself to a better way of supporting them. So I, yes. I, I love that. So, you know, you've had that conversation. The training then begins. What happens if there's a problem along the way that you may not have been aware of? I think that this can be picked up during regular supervision. I think it's very important for a clinical or educational supervisor to have a fixed kind of time during the week for supervision. And I think it, it is very important for the trainees to know that there is a space for them to talk about any issues to the supervisor. And I always keep that in my diary. And also, I would like the trainees to be more open if there's any issues they realize in their placement. And again, if I hear from other professionals that the trainee is struggling, and I would always like to meet with the trainees face to face to discuss the issues rather than going in down the route of, uh, raising it to the clinical directors or things like that. So I will always talk to the trainees first and try to mitigate any any problems if possible there and then. But again, you know, having that regular supervision will identify any issues, for example, communication issues, issues with time management, issues with difficulties working with other colleagues. So I think this will come up if you have regular meeting with the trainees on a weekly basis. And a final question before we hand over to Raham and then I'm going to come back to you is what message would you give to other supervisors? Because you've talked a bit about what you expect from trainees or what helps a trainee. What would you say to a trainer, someone who is contemplating taking on the role of an educational supervisor? What would you say to them? I would say that, as I said, nine out of 10 times, I found having an IMZ very rewarding. It is good for the team as well. They bring wealth of experience with them clinically. And I think as an educational supervisor, I think we need to be mindful that they, need, they may need a little bit of more support 
in terms of non-clinical issues mainly. I'm talking about, again, time management, administrative, and um, keeping a caseload. Those things will come with time. But once you train them, I think they do very well in most cases, and they contribute significantly to the team and the service in general. And I have seen uh, trainees doing very well in the exam, doing very significant quality improvement projects. And I think it's very important for the supervisor to provide that nurturing in the first couple of months and identify the weakness and strength in the training and then built in the supervision to help those weaknesses. And it is possible. I think it is very much doable from my experience in the last few years. And that is really interesting because what you're saying is it's not, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's not just about taking on the role as a supervisor, but as being a supervisor does have a nurturing element to it. It does have a training element to it, not just in the clinical sense, but helping them with their, as you said, beat with their communication skills, team building, time management. So it's about the supervisor recognising it's not just having that title, but they've got to do a bit more. Yes. But one, one thing, Jake, is very important to remember that if you are not doing well with time management and other areas, it is going to affect your clinical work eventually. So that's why it's very important for the trainers to be mindful that international medical graduate may have a different set of training where they may not get the appropriate training in terms of those issues, non-clinical issues, where we need to focus in the first few months of their placement. A lot of trainees I have seen, they picked up very quickly and they do very well. But I think that having that weekly supervision, looking at how much they progress is very crucial. I know when you and I had a conversation some time ago, you also mentioned to me, Kapil, that it's important that the supervisor knows where to go for other support if they can't provide it themselves. So not to worry if they don't have all the answers. That, that's true. And nowadays we have a so much help and support through Deanery and the education and development team. And in, I work in Surrey and we have an excellent team. So you can go there for help. We have college tutors who can also provide a lot of help for trainees who are struggling or even, you know, to improve their communication skills with a lot of courses available. So I think, yes, as a supervisor, I think there are a lot of help available now compared to, say, 10 years ago. And I think we should take the opportunity to use those resources available. So just to sum up, it sounds to me as if, yes, there are conversations we should be having with the trainee, but it's also about supervisors, the trainer, recognising that they too have things to learn. They won't know everything and it doesn't matter. I mean, because you can be a consultant, but you don't know everything about having that pastoral, that nurturing role with a trainee. So it's a continuous professional development learning for both sides. Yeah, it definitely. I agree with you. And sometimes I learn a lot of things from my trainees. You know, if there's a problem, I always ask them to to see whether they see any resources available. And I think a lot of times, you know, they come up with very excellent ideas. So I think that's why it's a two-way process in terms of supervision. It's definitely not didactic kind of supervisor giving them information. It has to be both ways. Wonderful. I'm now going to hand over to Reham, who has already explained to us that she is an international medical graduate. And I thought, Reham, I would ask you to just share with us briefly 
what was your experience when you first arrived in the UK as an IMG, International Medical Graduate? I came as MTI doctor and started as ST4, worked one year, didn't have a single friend here except my education supervisor, which was very nice because she came to receive me at the airport on a Sunday morning. She dragged my luggage to my hostel room, showed me around, brought breakfast stuff with her. She brought a pizza, homemade pizza in a tupper box made by her husband for my lunch. And then she showed me around and they said, there are many halal restaurants around. You can go and explore in the evening, but in the afternoon, you are not supposed to go. Right from setting my portfolio to my bank account, to my phone contract, she helped me through. But obviously she was my education supervisor. And as a trainee, I, I had to keep a limit to everything. She was not my friend, friend. So I used to approach her, but there was kind of a hesitation, which was part of kind of my culture that we know that our teacher is very nice, but we keep a limit with those people, if you understand what I mean. I used to feel very lonely, very isolated. And to start with, I thought that this place is not for me and I made a mistake. I made the greatest mistake of my life. I had a good life. I had family with me. I was earning well. Um, I was a junior consultant and I would have become a senior consultant. I've had the opportunity to go and give my exam and come back and stay in my country. Why I made that decision? If I be very honest with you, because people around us don't understand that thing. It is a very new culture, to be very honest, to understand the differences of different cultures in UK. I don't know whether it was before or not, but now I have seen that people put more effort to get to know someone who is outside from UK, from different cultures. But when I started almost six years ago, it was not the same, uh, if I be very honest. My nurses used to call me very rude because we work with nurses, obviously, in, in our system, but there is kind of a very restricted relationship between doctors and nurses. I don't know how many times my nurses turn back to me when I ask them, though I try to be very polite to them. I usually am a polite person that I, as far as I know. But when I used to ask them, can you do that? And they turn back to me and they say, you haven't said please. You are very rude. And that thing used to hit me quite hard because I knew that I am trying to be as gentle as I could. Number two, English is not that language which we have been speaking, writing, and reading all our life. My subjects, which is medical degree, and after that, the university I was uh, working that is more Americanized. So we used to speak and deliver things in English. But English is entirely different when I came here. I still remember one day a patient said, when I started working, I need to wee. And I didn't know what did that mean. I went back to my nurse and I said, the patient is asking for this and I really don't know what does that mean. And she gave a hefty laugh and she said, uh, well, your patient, you need to pass water, darling. So yeah, dear darling, love, 
I never use those words, no matter how frank I am with my colleagues. But here I learned to say that. Now I call left, right, center, my patient, dear, darling. And the other day when I was talking like this to my sister and she said, what happened to you? So these things makes influence. Third thing, people around me, their attitude, my skin color. I landed up in Yorkshire and when they used to look at me with the brown skin, the majority of the area was white. And they used to stare at me that I am, God forbid, going to do some harm to them. When I used to ask for the road or, or, or a destination where I have to go, many, many, many people refused to talk to me. They didn't answer me to start with. It was really disheartening. My first year in UK, I would say, was not very encouraging, except my education supervisor. And then I eventually decided to go back, though my contract was for two years. But I had some domestic issues. My mother was not well. And I decided, okay, fine. Everything that the universe is telling me that this place is not for me, Reham, go back. And I decided to go back. But my education supervisor, again, though she changed her trust, she went to another trust uh, because she got the specialty what she wanted. She said, you are not going anywhere. I will talk to your mother if you will do that. My mother has a lot of influence as administrator of the family, ruler of the family. And my mother is a doctor, actually. She's not practicing anymore, but she knew the ups and lows of being a part of this specialty. So she, she actually kind of threatened me, my education supervisor, that I will talk to your mother if you'll do that. Because of her threat, I sat down and I applied on NHS jobs. The first three clinical fellow jobs I saw and I applied. The first place which called me, they called me within two weeks. And I went for the interview. I liked the place when I reached there. Uh, people who interviewed me, they were very nice. They offered me job there and then. And they offered me job of clinical fellow and ST3. So I started as a consultant back in Pakistan after finishing my training and my medical education. Came to UK, became ST4, reapplied asked to join as ST3. So kind of a demotion for me. Long story short, I decided I am not going back. I have done what I wanted to. I have seen UK. I have spent one year of my life. I learned what I wanted to learn. I don't want to go back. And my mother said, they already sent your visa. I said, yeah, but I can refuse. People refuse left, right, center their jobs. She said, no. Loyalty is the first thing you have to offer to anyone if you want to be a respectful person. I re still remember her words. And she said, if you will refuse this job, next time this trust or people who are working there, they will never trust another Pakistani. You are ruining the name of your country. So for one year, you have to go there and you have to work. I cannot tell you with such a heavy heart, I had to come back, but I came back. But luckily, when I started working as ST3 here, I'm, I was not very happy with my education supervisor. I spent one year, five months, five days to be precise in that trust. But a couple of supervisors, especially one, he was very accommodative, very helpful. I mean, he used to listen to you, sit with you, ask you. I remember that when I started coming back, I was not eating, sleeping well, but and he noticed that. He was not my education supervisor. I was not directly his responsibility. But after 
two, three months down the line, he called me in his office, sat with me, and he said, Raham, are you okay? I said, yeah, fine. I didn't want to discuss anything because I was not sure I should. And he said, are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? And I was wondering why he's asking this question, what I have done wrong, and how did he know that this is happening to me? And he said, Raham, you are, look at your picture when you joined and look at you now. You are losing weight very rapidly. And that was very morale boosting that there is someone who is taking care of you. You are not alone. And if you want to offer whatever you have as a doctor or as a human, there is someone who is ready to accept and he or she is paying attention. He or she know that you are a human, you are a living object. You are just not a service provider who is, if he or she is absent and not coming to their work, then people will know, oh, okay, she is not here. Maybe something wrong. Let's call her. There's a couple of things that you've said. One is interesting about feeling that you were sent to work in an area where people looked at you strange because they hadn't seen anyone like you. Is there anything that could have been said or done by the trust or whoever sent you there, you know, the deanery, that would have made that experience better? I think they have done in their capacity whatever they could. They were accommodative, they were helping, but it's kind of a mindset. At that time, I think that people used to think that if people are coming to UK, this is their responsibility because they decided to come to our country, which I understand because I decided to come to their country. I have to accept the rules and regulation of the system. I totally agree with that. But I don't think that there was a realization that someone who came to stay in your country, they are offering their services to your system. I think COVID has improved this concept that international medical graduate, they really gave themselves to the system. And that was realized in this pandemic by NHS and the people around them. Before that, I think this concept was not very glorified, in my opinion. Correct me if I'm wrong. How did you then cope in a place like Yorkshire, where you were seen as not part of that world. I was really not happy. How did you cope? I used to talk to my family almost every day. I had a friend who was uh, living in UAE and another friend. By the time I used to finish my shift, I used to come back, switch on Skype. I used to talk to them hours and hours. And sometime I used to sleep in front of Skype because I used to feel so lonely. I used to be a very happy, chirpy very talkative person. The first time I visited from UK and went back to my home, my family noticed this change and they said, you are not the same person we knew all our lives. So what would you say to a trainee, an IMG trainee now, who found themselves going to an area anywhere where the individuals who live in those areas are not used to seeing people of colour? What would you say to them in order to cope. I have that confidence, false confidence in me that I am going in a mature age, so I will be able to cope with everything. They need to have a backup system. They need to have people around them who know them. 
they need to know the place where they are going to start to work at least know the geography know the system where they're going to live and i mean kind of accommodation and last but not least they should know that what are their strengths which give them support in the time when they are feeling vulnerable and very weak and very alone i learned to know my strengths from my weaknesses i never knew that before and are you saying those strengths enabled you to cope in a situation that you thought you wouldn't okay so another question then because you talked about that feeling of demotion that there you were on a particular grade you came here and then it felt like a regression as a, rather than a progression yeah. how did that make you feel very demoralizing obviously guidelines here are entirely different than my country ane is entirely different than my country in my country ane means accidents and emergency with all due respect in nhs till now ane means anything and everything we used to see gunshot trauma i mean really any any stuff here we see majority of those things which can be seen and addressed by primary care or the other system they should be filtered before coming to ane you talked before about understanding this new culture so that was understanding a different way that people use the same system exactly because you also gave me when we spoke prior to this you talked about the way in which senior citizens in this country are treated you know yes. being in a home as opposed to in a family i have experienced two extremes here when i came from a foreign culture and a foreign country youngsters and young people or somehow middle aged people they don't trust you because of your color and your skin but the other extreme the elderly proper british elderly people they were so nice so kind so much understanding that sometime i used to be kind of flabbergasted i think i might have shared that experience with you uh, before that at that time i was st1 and i went to attend a regional training day in london and i was walking back to the railway station because i used to commute through that and i was having some uh, water coming out of my eye and i was not crying and a gentleman held my arm stopped me and he said are you okay i said yeah i'm fine because i didn't realize that and he said are you alone here and probably he thought that i'm an asian girl alone crying something happened to me and he said did your husband hurt you did anybody hurt you i can come with you there's a police station i can walk with you if you need any help don't be scared don't be afraid and i was kind of surprised where this conversation is going when he mentioned that you are crying i said no excuse me this is not the case actually this happened with my eyes when i go in very high flow air and stuff like that and my eyes start watering and i was walking alone obviously i was quiet so i was not looking a very happy person i mean there was a different stream of the people who did that and with time when i understood the system i started inculcating things of the culture in me without leaving mine behind i think that really helped me embedding this culture in me as well 
So and I think right now, after spending six years in the UK, I am having the best of both worlds. I'm carrying my old culture and people accept it. When I wear shalwar kameez and go to the Christmas party, people appreciate it. I'd like to pick you up on a few points there because you seem to be saying, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, about holding on to your authentic self as well as working in a different cultural space, holding on to your culture as well as. Yeah, I don't know about others. Uh, a couple can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, I don't think that I am a very uh, religious kind of a person, but there are a few things which give you base, like a hub of the cycle. And that hub of the cycle gives you the spike, which make a complete circle of your life. The hub which gave me strength was sticking to my own strengths, which has been inculcated. My brought up, don't lie, be loyal, be honest, uh, don't harm others, and my, my religion. So sticking to my religion and my own strengths, which I think I didn't leave them, but then I started realizing and accepting the culture around me. So in my religion, I cannot sit on a table where other people are drinking. This is kind of another extreme of the religion. But I started understanding that, say, for example, if Christmas party is in a pub and my whole department is going there and my head of department said that, please, you need to come. And I go there. If I'm not drinking, then I don't think that I am intruding anyone else's privacy or their culture, but I'm keeping mine as well. I'd like to move on from that because you talked about your experience, how you've adapted at the same time maintaining your own culture. What made you take on the role of a trainee rep? two months down the training, start of training, they introduced this idea that there should be a trainee representative and you will be working as a moderator from the trainees to the hierarchy of the school. And at that time, the only thing was in my idea that I think I will understand the system better and I will be in a position to help other people, especially like me, who hasn't seen the system better or they are very new into the culture. I might be able to help them to understand that what I have been through and what I learned and they can come out without the major bruises which I have sustained. There were people who helped me. I cannot negate that fact that there were people who really pushed me off, but there were people who really helped me. So I'm now going to wrap up. I'm going to ask both of you questions. Well, two questions really. One is, what would have made your earlier experience better when you arrived here? I think part of my mistake, because I came with a notion that I knew everything, I had to be more open-hearted and more open-minded. I learned that by making mistakes. And I have become more flexible and more humble because of my experiences and my mistakes. I am more accommodative to the cultural intricacies and the difference of opinion. I was more strong-headed when I came here. Now I try to understand what people are saying from the other end of the table, because I came as a consultant, then started as a junior 
training. So I have seen both ends of the world. So now when my consultant says something from trainee point of view, I don't just kind of spark like a matchstick. I can understand how many pebbles are in their shoes, how difficult it is to walk as a consultant. So now I am more understanding to those differences. And as a trainee representative, again, when I attend meeting, I see that whatever comes from trainee and how serious they are to solve those problems, they have best interest for trainees at heart. It, it, it really helps me understanding both things. So my final question to you is, what would you say to a supervisor to be even better to support their, particularly their IMG trainees? I would like to tell them that whosoever they are receiving, just try to have a look on their CV, understand that what idea they are coming from, how much experience they have, because if you say, for example, you are having 13 years of experience in your country, or you are having one year experience in your country, there is a much difference. So if you know the person a little better and then make an idea that according to that, how you are going to deal with them before you make an assumption that he should know or she shouldn't know or she can do or he can't do that. Sit with them, talk to them and discuss their insecurities and their queries before you make a judgment that this person is capable enough or not. Thank you very much. I'm handing over to Kapil now to really pull it together to finish here because, you know, how would you finish this sentence really, Kapil? Things would be even better for international medical graduate trainees if. What would they need to do and what would you say a supervisor needs to do? As I said before, supervision is a two-way process. A trainee has to realise that it is a very trainee-led training culture in the UK. They have to bring things to supervision so that they can better themselves. And I think if I look back in my career as a supervisor, I think one thing would have helped me if I had known there are so much help available outside that you can seek help from, ranging from the Royal College, British Medical Association, your local deanery, and every trust has an education and development team. I think if I had known, I would not have felt so lonely at times. I think definitely now I use those resources from the very beginning. And being honest, I think I have to emphasize the word. I think it's very important for the trainers to be honest with the trainee at the outset so that they know what is expected of them and also uh, realizing their expectation of the post as well. And I think every IMZ I have met has significant potential to become a very excellent doctors. I think that's why I think we need to nurture them as much as we can in the first few months of their placement. Otherwise, we'll miss out the good things they bring to the team and, and to the NHS in the long term. And another thing I, I would say, you know, Eva Reham's uh, point of view, knowing the trainee is so important to get the most out of them. I think from my personal experience, the trainees who did well at the end are those who I know well from the beginning. They are strength, they are weaknesses, and I found trainees flourish even after a few months. You know, if you realize where you target their training to, you can't be good in everywhere. You know, some people are very good in communication. They may not be good at timekeeping. So I think what you need to look as a supervisor is to find out the areas that you can work together to improve. 
and again, the deaneries, I think, and Jackie, as you have mentioned, deanery has so many courses nowadays for non-clinical areas for improvement. I think we can kind of ask the trainees to look into them, as well as keeping the supervision consistent is very important, I believe. Um, having the regular meeting with the trainees will identify any problems and also prevent any serious problems in the future. And I think probably, Nariham, you, you agree as well, the, the trainees, that you found some of the supervision not as good as the others, but supervision where the, the supervisor listened to you, understood where you are coming from, not only looking at you as somebody who is doing a job, but looking at you as a person, I think you are more likely to develop as a well-rounded clinician. Yeah, these are my main views, I think, Jackie. Thank you so much. So really, to sum up, I mean, there's just so much that you both have said, so rich. And I'm hoping that when people listen to this podcast, what we're not saying and what neither one of you have said is that there's a right or wrong way. There's learning on both sides. And it's about listening to understand the trainee. And it's about the trainee listening to understand what the supervisor is saying. And as you've said, it's a two-way process. It's about recognising potential. It's about um, celebrating what both can bring to the table and both recognising that they can learn from each other. Thank you both very much indeed. Any last words, Reham? I would like to add something. As a trainee, I know now where to go. But people who come, they don't start right from the training position. They start as trust doctor or non-trainee doctor. I am not sure that they have this knowledge of having personal support unit and people whom they can talk to, or if they are having any kind of problem professionally or personally. As a trainee, I know where to go, but I am not sure trust rate doctors or new doctors in the system knew about it. If I would have known these things are available when I started, probably things would have been a little different. That is a brilliant point because it comes back to what Kapil was saying. He didn't use the word induction, but by having that conversation with your trainee where you are asking them about their personal circumstances, their expectations for them to be honest, frank and the importance of those regular supervision and what's out there. That is a good starting point. In the same way, Reham, you mentioned when you first arrived on that Sunday morning and your supervisor was there who gave you an induction into so many things, including the area where you work. So those are the things that actually lay the foundation, I think, for a good training experience. And I think we'll end it there. So thank you both very, very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for having us.